Hello, and welcome to our new podcast, Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes. I'm Cassie Roble, the Director of Education and Community Engagement. And I'm Kathleen Trott, the Shop Manager for the Marlowe Allen and Scott Stallard Costume Artisan Workshop. Thank you all for joining us today. In this podcast series, we are going to introduce you all to the different departments and people that are necessary to produce the operas that you enjoy. In this episode, you will meet Ryan Bruner and Matt Christoffel, two of the members of the Arizona Opera Scenic Studio. Before we begin, if you tuned in last week, we played trivia at the end of the episode. Question one. Under the pseudonym Dr. Spin, Andrew Lloyd Webber released a top 10 single in 1992 called Tetris. The Palace Theater has seats permanently bolted open for their theater ghosts. They have two theater ghosts. Be sure that you continue to play along with us in each episode. We are joined here today with Ryan Bruner and Matt Christoffel at the Arizona Opera Scenic Studio. Welcome. Thank you. Awesome. Matt, what is your job here at the Scenic Studio? Uh, I am the new technical director. I've been here for roughly four weeks as of, ah, yeah, today, the 24th. So yeah, about four weeks. Um, I originally came from Indiana and worked for brief stints throughout the country and world. Ryan, what do you do here at the Scenic Studio? I'm the head carpenter. I've been working here for about five years. So, Ryan, what does it mean to be the head carpenter? So I, uh, I'll take the drawings and then we'll do, we'll build all the sets, figure out all the ground plans. So when we get ready to go into the theater, we actually have a plan. (laughs) Awesome. And Matt, as the technical director, what does that mean? Uh, I work closely in relation with the uh, designers and making their their dreams or their their designs come into fruition here at the shop so the the carpenters can build it and then i oversee all the install work at the at the theater so when ryan says seeing the drawings come to life what is that yeah um so what drawings he's talking about are the uh what we call here the build drawings um he uh so i work with the designers and get their drawings and so their their overall vision for the show with color and pretty much everything. And I break that down, do a estimate on it, and then from there I go through and break that even farther down into how to build their overall set piece and take it down to piece by piece so that when I send the drawings out to the carpenters, they look at the drawing and they know that's a two by four, that's a one by four, how to frame the walls and then how to skin them or, or put their facings on them so that the painter can have them. So you're saying drawings, but we don't actually mean by hand drawings. We don't do it that way anymore, right? Uh, sometimes I do. Um, depends on what I'm doing. Uh, I, I was taught how to draw by hand in college, and a lot of the drawings we get depend on the complexity of it. I will actually hand draw them okay. just so I can, I can wrap my mind around how sure. it's supposed to work. And then usually when I send it out to the shop, it's a computerized CAD style drawing. Uh, the program we use here is called Vectorworks. It's a entertainment industry drafting program like CAD. So yeah, I'll, uh, I sometimes will hand draft it and then send it out. Usually when they get it, it'll be a CAD style drawing though. Okay, cool. So then normally we perform in more than one space, 
right? So what does that mean for you, Ryan, and for you, Matt, if we know going in that we have to build a set and it has to be in Phoenix on one stage and in Tucson on another stage? Well, it, a big thing to do with that is when we go into Phoenix, it's it's a lot different than Tucson's lo or venue. And uh, so just load out alone, you have to plan what you're trying to load out first and get down out of the air so you can get into the truck so it comes back out in the right order. And it's it's fun. <laughs> So you guys have a lot to think about that isn't even just the actual thing that the audience sees. You have to think about the stuff that's behind what the audience sees and how it goes together. Well, and, and that planning process starts weeks and sometimes months in advance on how we build things and then the logistics of how we get that set piece to the theater because the scenic studio is not even on site, which is different than every other place I've worked in where the scenic studio is usually on site. So, you know, I can do my load in in four weeks of build a set piece, get it over to paint, sure. so they paint it, and then we load it in and install it. Whereas here, it's it all happens in just a couple of days to a week, and then, also, and then it goes to another city even. We've also changed the whole build drawing because it had to store a certain way at the hall. Because oh, just okay. for space and doing changeovers and, Great. you know. Oh, so then here at the Scenic Studio, we have room for building the walls and all of that and also for painting we have a designated space for that yeah yeah um that's that's a unique setup here to arizona opera again i've worked in numerous uh scenic studios throughout the country and that's not the case everywhere ideally yes it would be um so when i got here when i did the interview process with greg he sent me a, a shop drawing of how the layout was and it, it was really nice to know that our painter has a nice clean environment to paint in and stay away from, as we call it here in the industry, the wood butchers and the, the sawdust <laughs> and, the, and the, the mess. It's actually a quite a big step up from where we were when I first started here because we shared our warehouse space, our build space, and our paint space all in the same little area pretty yeah. much, and it was pretty tricky to do. If you are listening on one of our podcast channels, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud, head over to Arizona Opera On Demand, our new TV channel that you can access by going to our website, azopera.org. We have compiled a series of photos so that you can see what is being referenced in this podcast. You can see pictures of the scenic studio, the painting area. Um, so you have an idea of what we're talking about in this episode. Great. So um, then I would be really interested to find out how you guys got here. Like how, how are you working in a theater company? And then how did you get to Arizona Opera? Because I think we all, Cassie and I discussed previously that we all got here in general, but then here Arizona Opera specifically in various ways. Um, so it'd be really good to know, like, how did you end up with Arizona Opera, Ryan? Well, I actually work for the IATSE Local 336, and I had got a call to go to a show at the theater one day. And I, my first call was to, was for props on Magic Flute. And I was wrapping ribbon around the, the bicycle. So, <laughs> and so, and I I saw some of the set, and it looked really fun to do. And I every call I got for the opera, I wanted to take it. So, and I ended up here. So then, have you always wanted to do background stuff for theater? Not necessarily, but I have ever since I was a kid. Even my mom would tell me that, like, when I watch a movie, I would pick apart the background, uh -uh. and to where she didn't even want to watch it anymore. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> So how did you end up in 
the theater biz, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. My, uh, my uh, theater journey or my entertainment industry journey started way back when I was in seventh grade. Uh, my older brother and older cousin worked in the tech club at my at the high school we all went to. And I've always been interested in building things and making things with my hands and seeing how things work to the point of taking apart old weed eaters and trying to fix them and why why they work that way. So uh, I started working in, in the theater then when I was in seventh grade and went through and there's a, a local tour company out of Elkhart, or my hometown, Elkhart, Indiana, um, that the uh, owner's daughter went to high school with me. So I ended up doing some overhire work and things like that for them, running audio. And so I graduated high school then, went to Indiana State in Terre Haute, Indiana, um, worked for the basketball arena there for tech services, ran all the technology for all of our athletic venues, as well as we have three Broadway theaters there that are tour houses. So they bring in Broadway tours and rock bands and things like that, as well as at the arena and the athletic venues. And, uh, I was actually studying music education at the time, spent uh, four and a half years there. And as I was doing my student teaching, I realized this isn't what I wanted to do with my life. I had been in theater at that point in time, almost half my life and decided, hey, I'm, I'm making the wrong career choice here. So I, that day I was about six weeks into my, uh, into my student teaching, dropped out of uh, music ed school and changed my degree to theater technology and design and forced an entire four-year degree through in two and a half years. So it was, it was a process, but uh, yeah, that's how I got involved in the entertainment industry. So Matt and Ryan, so I know that we have a technical director and we have a carpenter. Is that all? That can't be all that we need. Cause like in the costume shop, I have a myriad of people that all do variations of these things, right? Like, so the technical director is sort of like shop manager and then my carpenter would be sort of like my master stitcher. So what then else do you guys have in order to get things done? Because if you're a carpenter, you don't weld, right? No, I do not. We do okay. have a welder for that. Oh, well, so we have an actual welder yeah. who does that. Okay, what other things then do we sort of on a normal basis have in the shop? I know sometimes we bring in extra hands, yeah. but who are our normal guys who we see most of the time around Well, here? we have Raz, which is our welder. He's, uh -huh. he's been here you know, about four years, almost as long as I have. And then I actually work with my father, which is our union steward for the shop, but he's a carpenter, so. Okay. Yeah, the, uh, the typical scenic studio setup for the industry, you've got your technical director, and then depending on the size of the, the company you work for, sometimes you have an assistant technical director, uh, then you can branch out and have a drafts person who their sole job is making the scenic drawings and doing the estimates. Um, if it's a really large company like your Broadway theaters, they have an estimator and every, every specific job is broke down into a title. An individual person, um, sure. Whereas in your regional theaters and your regional operas and things like that, um, it's a technical director, an assistant technical director, uh, then you go master carper, head carp, your welder. If you're a union house, you've got your steward and then you've got carpenters and welders and then you send it all over to paints and you've got your charge artists and your assistant charge artists and everybody else under them. Okay. And then when we get real busy, we've hired up to, I mean, you know, back in the day, we've hired up to 16 extra carpenters in the shop as well. 
and uh like when we go to load the trucks we'll have a couple extra hands come and help depending on the show as well so if we were to stage so say we're gonna what's a show let me think a big show let's do la traviata and we were to stage and build la traviata how many people are involved in the scenic build part when including we, like getting on stage when i know we set that up i believe we had 41 crew members on stage that's at the time that's incredible it's something and that you a don't a little more for actual loading like first two days of loading there's always a couple extra hands to help unload trucks and you know so when you things around when you say load in what are you what are you referring to well it starts with unloading the truck and then <laughs> you load into the into the theater so we'll hang everything from the system pipes and map out the stage floor and build the deck and all that and hang all the electrics and audio and everything else and so is it safe to say when you're building a show in the scenic studio are you building it in of course you're building it in pieces and then it travels in pieces do you put it together in the scenic studio see it finished take it apart put it in the truck take it out of the truck put it in symphony hall take it apart put it back in the truck drive it down to tucson is that really as much as we possibly can it's always better if you're able to assemble it before you hit the stage because you never know if it's going to line up or not and you know everything we don't have uh, a line set here so we can't fly anything like it's supposed to there but we always try to assemble it make sure everything fits together so we're not wasting all that time on stage what is flying (laughs) you hang it from a, a, a system pipe and you counterweight it in the arbor for, and you have a guy who's a flyman over there and he'll, uh, you know, he'll weight it and then you just simply pull a rope and it goes away. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy to me to think that there is a, when scenery is going away, it's often going up, right? Yes. Like up yeah. into out, the roof. Typically yeah. out is up and in is down. <laughs> yeah. That is actually why historical knowledge. Uh, <laughs> you didn't whistle in a theater. Yeah, exactly. Because that was how they used to communicate with flymen. Because they didn't have well, the old live s- mic channels back in the day. So the only way that you could tell them when they needed to take things in and out was they'd whistle. And it all came from sailors. Yeah. yeah. It, it yeah. all originated as for, from sailors. They would come in and they wouldn't have nothing to do. So they would do some theater work and they would whistle to each other. And they knew what each whistle meant. And it would be bring that in or take it out or stop. <laughs> and for the most part, that's still common in the uh, maritime industry. I worked for Carnival Cruise Lines for about two and a half years right after college. And we would still, when we hit port, a lot of the entertainment techs would go into port and moonlight for a couple hours at a theater. And we still use a lot of whistle commands and whistle cues from the grid and from what we called the crow's nest where uh, our rigging chief would sit. So a lot of that during rehearsal and setup and teardown would still be whistle commands on the stage. Well, we have at Symphony Hall, our flymen are on the stage level, but there are theaters where they are up high and you have to go up to a ladder to get up to them. Yeah, every single theater is slightly different in the back, which makes touring a challenge because you have to make this thing that's been built in New York or wherever fit into every single space, which is never exactly the same. Yeah, I worked on a tour when I was in college. I overhired with the local there in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, We did uh, Ragtime the Musical, and our theater was under spec for the tour, 
and it was to the point where our the theater was on the second floor so all of the load in and load out from the semis had to go up a forklift elevator to the theater through a garage door the day of the show of course it was raining so we pre-staged all of act two on the dock oh my gosh on the ground outside by the semis under big blue tarps and then at intermission we opened the garage door load out act one and load in act two and during ragtime there's an old ford model t that's in the show and it was drenched and we had to cut that scene which is a good part of act two i was gonna say though that i think that that sounds to me like really riders of the yes, purple that's sage exactly what right I was gonna say. We yeah have, then uh, two scenes outside <laughs> each time we had to open up the doors and and roll them in and swap it out so open up the doors there are two huge doors that are off of the actual stage then yeah. and so then literally jane's bedroom was outside in the loading dock yes. and in the show you guys had to like open up the doors and swap set pieces right and try to quietly move it in uh-huh <laughs> so when you are doing this are you doing it while the opera is go? So we are we as patrons are watching the opera, and you are in the back shuffling the stuff around very quietly. Yes. Or, I guess, and or when we're out in the lobby at intermission, you're not just sitting around. You are totally changing the stage, correct? Yeah. We uh, as soon as it as soon as intermission starts, we try to do anything quiet we can for at least the first five minutes. That way, we get a couple people out and make it a little less obvious. <laughs> it's crazy to think about as, as a patron, you never think that, you know, you guys are running, not run. I keep saying running around. No, no one is running around no. backstage. We try not to run too much. <laughs> there have been some shows where. <laughs> right, right. Quietly and calmly walking around backstage and doing all this stuff and it, we just have no idea. So then you, Ryan, are at the performances often, but you're not building things there. So what do what do you guys do at performances? Because it's not the same thing that you do when you're in the scene shop. Yeah. So when I'm there, I'm, I'm actually the head carpenter through the, uh, the local here. And so basically that's, you're overseeing the entire stage, anything going on on the stage. The main thing is when you're flying and when we're building and hanging stuff, we're the flying in the line sets and flying them out. Like it's, I'm, I'm the only one that talks to the flymen at all until I pass it off to Carrie when she can now call her cues. Yeah, you can't have too many people calling in line sets and you, yeah, there's, I mean, at any given time, there's over, you know, there's 10, 20,000 pounds above your head. So then what happens with like, do, does Raz, do Raz and Bob come to the performance space? Like, what is the difference between the crew that you guys have here at our scenic studio and the people who are backstage at the performance space well my uh, bob he'll he'll come to the theater sometimes to do some shows he's actually a steward for the ia so he'll, he'll steward those shows and and typically we're under a certain number so he'll he's a working steward so okay. he, he'll be a part of he'll have a cue sheet and have cues to do and everything oh, okay. raz is usually our guy here that pulls us out of a clinch okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like i've heard before Somebody call Raz and have him bring something yeah, down. Yeah, that'll, so. that'll happen here and there. I mean, you, you can never plan for everything, it sure. seems like. It, it, you can try and try and try. There's always <laughs> going to be one little bolt or one something that's not here. <laughs> and that's not just an Arizona Opera no. yeah. issue. 
So I guess in a, generally speaking, Matt, you are most involved while the set is being designed and created. And then Ryan, you almost not take over, but you are most involved in the building and then implement. Yeah, pretty much running the crew to to get it all together and, and safely. Yeah, yeah, we uh, I'm all hands on through conceptualization to install and open and even through the load-in or the install process, I start to step away, and that's where the handoff happens between Ryan and I. Um, once, that's, once that process is done, I'll be there for the tech rehearsals to get the notes and things like that. But once that last tech closes after our last production meeting, I'm out the door and full steam ahead on the next production or the next project in the shop or the next Ed show that Cassie's got going on or whatever. <laughs> so, so, five Ed shows a yeah. year. Hey. Apparently. Are we doing more storybooks? That's, 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 <laughs> that's so funny. So we're going to take a quick break from our episode to talk about some of Arizona Opera's upcoming events. First up is our Coffee at Care lecture that is now virtual on October 28th. This lecture is going to be about the invention of opera um, and will be given by Brian Damaris. And following our October 28th lecture, we will have our second Care Cultural Center lecture, Coffee at Care, on November 18th, which is a part two of his first lecture called The Invention of the American Musical. And then don't miss our November studio spotlights. So our first one is November 6th in Phoenix at 6 p.m. on the Tancer Plaza, and we'll be live streaming it. And then on November 8th, we'll be in Tucson at 3 p.m. Make sure you visit our calendar at azopera.org to find all of our other events and visit our new channel, Arizona Opera On Demand. Now, let's get back to our episode. Why don't we kind of talk a little about, about like, I'm sure that sometimes you have to do kind of weird and interesting things in theater because it's the nature of the beast, right? So can you think of a, a thing that you've sort of been involved with that was interesting or odd or that our listeners would never think about the fact that someone actually had to build that thing or how do you even build that thing well uh das rheingold was one where we pretty much the orchestra was then on stage and we had to make the pit ready for actors and there was some children down there and everything so we had to plug a bunch of because there's holes under there and they they go down quite far because the pit actually moves up and down and uh -huh. it, it, it'll go down like three different levels at symphony hall i believe and uh so we had to figure out how to plug all that up and we had to put a fogger system in there and yeah well, that was it was a pretty fun one on I that like it was we tricky had a, we had a moment where the fog was going where it wasn't supposed to go right yeah i actually had to turn it off during performance <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> am i am i wrong to say that you had a little nibelung involved oh, in rheingold yeah. yeah kathleen's daughter was one of the children yeah, that that's, were yeah. in the pit yeah yeah so yeah, she had to crawl. You guys had to like build and put a little carpet, I yeah. think, because there were a couple of them that had to crawl because the pit was divided in half because yeah. there was a walk bit. And so the kids had to crawl underneath that little walk area to the other half. Yeah. And the maidens also came up out of there. That's where the fog really got out of control was 
Because they're in the river and... And dancing around. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> it gets a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a pretty tight space as well. And, you know, trying to make everything fit and have it work for the way the show is supposed to run. It was, it was tricky. Okay. What about you, Matt? Oh, man. Um, trying to think of the most unique. Um, little bit of information is that I think is interesting, at least, that... I had in Grand Amino, I worked for Carnival for so long that I got in the habit of tying everything down because in the theater, everything's on wheels. On the ship, the ship is constantly listing and pulling and just constantly moving. So there on the ship, we have to tie everything down. Our fly systems are all tied down and double knotted off to where if anything fails, they're, they're not moving. Um, all of your road cases, all of your set pieces, they're either flown up and tied off or strapped to a wall, strapped to the floor, bolted to the floor. So after I left Carnival, I was working for the University of Notre Dame, and I got in the habit of tying things off. And um, we were doing a show, production, and uh, my boss came to me and says, who is tying everything off? <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? She goes, all the road cases, all the set pieces are tied to the wall or screwed to the floor. I said, oh, that's me. She goes, why are you doing that? Said, we don't do that here? <laughs> no, well, you're not on a ship anymore. Yeah, that's right. So Ryan is there. Is there something from the last couple of seasons that you've been here that, like, we built that you really enjoyed working on? That, or that when you saw it, you were like, yeah, I'm really proud of that. That turned out really well. Yeah, actually quite a few. I like uh, Riders of the Purple Sage I was pretty proud of. That was one of our first, that was my first world, pr- world premiere with the opera. And one of the first sets I got to build just from scratch. So it started as a pile of lumber and it became this pretty amazing set in my eyes. So. It was probably one of my more fun shows I had to build. And you've actually built it twice, yes. right? Yeah, we, re, we re-ramped it for the second go-around here, which was also pretty fun. I mean, it, it did make it a lot better. I, I think it, it added a lot to it. What, Ryan? Because it seems like you are enjoying your time here, which is good, because we like our employees to be happy. So what, what do you really like about working at Arizona Opera, then? Is there something in particular that well, makes I, you want to keep coming back to us? I've always like I've always enjoyed carpentry. I've always liked working with wood. That's since I was five years old. I mean, that's when I started woodworking. I, my dad, one of my dad's friends, was he owned a a business and he built like furniture for Oasis bedroom and stuff like that. So oh, okay. He got me into it, and so I've always liked doing that. And when I came here, I I didn't know much about opera at all when I started, but when I saw the sets and what you. Really what I like about it is when they all come to life. When you get to see how they work and, and how it looks to everybody when they work, it's, it's really, really cool. And at, like I said, I, hadn't, I had no idea about the opera before, but after I saw it is what actually got me more into it. Is there something in particular that you guys are really looking forward to for this upcoming season or for the future in general through Arizona Opera? I'm really looking forward to getting back into the theater. <laughs> yeah. I would like to do a show again. So. The uh, Copper Queen show, that's, that's going to be interesting because it's very different from what we normally build for. So When we did our first podcast with The Apprentices, something that I asked them is what is the difference between designing and costuming for film versus theater? And so I'm going to pose the same question to, to you too, Matt and Ryan. What, because we know, you know, when you're in theater, the audience is so far away and they're always that far away. But in film, it's a whole new world because they're really, I mean, they're getting up close to things. So how are you changing or altering what you're doing to accommodate for film? 
Uh, yeah. Um, so the uh, the biggest thing is in standard opera, you, you we play the forty foot rule where your closest audience member will be forty feet away from the set. So we can get by with a few cosmetic problems or oversights, if you will. Whereas for film, it's got to be spot on. Like you're sitting in the living room or in the bedroom, if it were, uh, with the actors, so that you know the trim can't be a quarter inch off. There can't be a gap that you just fill with caulk or anything like that. It's got to be butt up and look exact and precise. So it's going to be a lot of weight on Ryan and Bob's shoulders out there in the shop. The... I, I actually prefer uh, finish work. So, <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, have you ever done anything for film before? Or is this the first? Well, I've built, uh, I've built for kind of for film. It was for Hulu and NBC. Oh, wow. um, I did two sets for them. It was for the uh, San Diego Comic Con, so that's awesome. Yeah, it was really fun. It, a lot, a lot different though. Like, like I said, and a lot of things in theater will actually build bigger because they have to be able to read it from that far away. Right, that's true. That's really true. And you are having to then design this because we're filming the Copper Queen, um, not on Symphony Hall. So you're also designing for a different room, and that all comes into play. And you gotta, so you're really changing everything. Yeah, yeah. Queen. So. When I got here, the uh, the prelims for the for the film film adaptation of the show hadn't been sent to me yet. So my first two weeks here, I was looking at the Symphony Hall prelims of Copper Queen. Once I got the information that I needed, you know, the heights really and the size of the black box, I could start diving in and kind of estimating what the show is going to be. And then I got the drawing and really realized that I can change a lot of this because. The original adaptation for the for the stage, there was going to be a lot of flown elements, meaning it was going to be hung from the pipes and then taken out scene to scene. Whereas here, we don't have that that ability because we don't have enough height in the in the yeah. black box. So it's it's a lot different, and budget wise, it's going to be a lot nicer on the budget. We also have the benefit in film of being able to stop what the audience sees because you cut and then yes. you're like, all right, well, yep. blah, blah, blah. and then you do the next part. So we can actually use different furniture now from one scene to the next scene because we don't have to worry about making the furniture appear in two seconds worth of time. And we can do that with some of the set too. We can yeah, change our yeah. angles and how we're looking at things. And A little insight to the set. The set is being designed to where it's, it's a room. It's a four-walled room. Usually in theater, it's you don't have the fourth wall, so that's where the audience sees through. Um, so this set, having four walls is, it, for me, first off, looking at it on paper, really confusing and complicated. So I'm like, wait, where is downstage? What's upstage? What's going on? Where, where are things in this room? How does it lay out? And then the second thought was, because I hadn't had any conversation with the designer yet, so the, the second thought was, how does this work? Where do the cameras go? Because it's a really small room. It's only 18 by 12. So uh -huh. not a real big room. And I've worked in film, so I know the size of the equipment and how the equipment yeah, yeah, works. Yeah. So it's like, I, I, this isn't doable. And then I, I called the designer and we had a conversation that actually two of the walls that I have nicknamed now the downstage walls move away so we can shoot on site, if you will, in those two specific areas of the room. And then the rest of it will be a more traditional scenic element okay. that way. That so seems like a really clever solution. To... Yeah, so as you're watching it, really think about how it's really actually four walls that we move away and then move in when we need them. So. 
That's cool. And we get to have angles that are actually more like real angles, right? Because all the time in like, even in film though too, they cheat things, right? Rooms yeah. are never at 90 degrees because <laughs> yeah. yeah. it's a terrible thing to try to film into that. You get a real dark shadow in those yeah. corners. But because here. we can remove walls, we mm -hmm. can actually change and we don't have that to deal with quite as much, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is, is being able to move things. That's the, the big plus to working for film is being that, that avenue of moving things around and resetting totally. So this has been really great. And I think we're going to end with some fun little trivia. We're not keeping any score at all in any way. So please don't oh, feel like, score oh, well, by math, <laughs> score. And like with our previous episode, we'll give you guys all the answers some other time. So then... I have um, four names here for you, and one of them isn't a classically trained opera singer. Okay? Mike Rowe, Jackie Chan, Dr. Drew, and Joel Gray. Wait, one of them isn't? Is Only so one of them. So you're saying. Of them are classically, they classically trained in opera. I think Micro. I have the right answer, but I don't know who Dr. Drew is. Dr. Drew is like MTV Teen Mom host. Yeah, so oh, he, okay. he and Adam Carolla Ooh, hosted Love Line together for years. I mean, Dr. Drew hosted it before Adam Carolla mm -hmm. jumped on, but yeah, so, and he's a legitimate doctor. Yeah. So. Say the list once more. So, uh, I don't remember the order I said it in, but Mike Rowe, mm -hmm. he's, uh, does the voiceover for a lot of stuff. He hosts Dirty, a, jobs. dirty jobs. Yes, yeah. exactly. Dr. Drew. Jackie Chan, which we know who Jackie Chan is, right? And then Joel Gray. Who's that? Joel Gray uh, is a Broadway and stage performer. He uh, was the original MC mm -hmm. in Cabaret. Yep. Um, okay. I I think I have my. I think I want to say Jackie Chan. Okay. Um, I want to say the Doctor. Doctor Drew. Yeah, Doctor Drew. Oh, Micro. All right. Well. Thank you so much, you guys. I had a good time and we learned some stuff. I appreciate you taking time from your days to chat with us. I know that Cassie and I both know you guys some, but it's nice to be able to share our staff with our patrons who never get a chance to meet you guys. So. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate being here. Thank you for joining us for our second episode of Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes. Join us next month as we sit down with some of the members of the Marion Roos Pullen Arizona Opera Studio. We'll be releasing a new behind the scenes podcast each month, so make sure you check our website, azopera.org, and follow us where? Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And make sure you join our email list, which you can do on our website, so you never miss anything that Arizona Opera is doing. Yeah, you definitely don't want to miss out. This podcast is part of the Arizona Opera NextGen Initiative, an initiative that encompasses the wide variety of programs that go beyond the opera stage to develop the next generation of opera artists, audiences, and philanthropists. To learn more about NextGen, please visit azopera.org and click NextGen Initiative. These programs are made possible through the support of Roma Whitcoff, Jeanette J. Siegel, and Amy.